0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about alcohol. Specifically, alcohol is a controlled substance or something I'd describe as pour me a vacation. had inappropriate conversations in the past, especially early on, where I took the time to talk about drugs and talk about drugs from an open-minded, but nevertheless, a critical perspective. I am not a just say no person. However, I'm also somebody who's never used an illegal drug, but in order to speak about alcohol as a controlled substance, I will need to speak about the use of alcohol illegally. But first, a quick shout out to the country rock band from Oklahoma called The Great Divide, because the title I'm going to put on this inappropriate conversation is from one of their songs called Pour Me a Vacation, and the lyric Barmaid, play me some Buffet? I'm in the mood to get away, so pour me a vacation. I need to leave here right away. Make no mistake about it, the use of alcoholic beverages is a use of drugs. And one of the things this country in particular here in America could use is a little bit of demystification around this concept of drugs. You know, uh, too often going all the way back to, in in my experience, the Reagan administration, but it probably really goes all the way back to the 1960s in terms of our national hysteria over drugs. It literally goes back 30 years before that. And you can see it in films like Reefer Madness, but as a country, I think we need to have you know, a good open conversation about ideas about whether tobacco is a drug, whether alcohol is a drug, whether aspirin, for that matter, or over-the-counter medications like Tylenol. We know that Sudafed is a drug because anymore that over-the-counter medication that you might use for you know, cold and flu symptoms is locked behind the pharmacy's desk with all the other sort of prescription – oh, by the way, prescription drugs – because Sudafed can be used to create you know, much more dangerous controlled substances. But anything that's regulated by the government, because of its properties which you know, are medicinal in nature or you know, can be used as some sort of – well, a way of getting high, I suppose, would be the way you'd word it, falls under this heading of drugs. And in the scale of the, the dangers and the risks, the risk-reward of drug use – anybody who has an idea that alcohol is the safest or even on the safest end of that scale is making a mistake. You probably should stop and do a little bit of research and figure out whether or not you're comfortable with the hypocrisy in our country about what drugs we deem to be available for public consumption and what drugs we consider to be too dangerous. Now I probably will tell some stories here I've told before I've been trying to think my way through how to avoid that, and I don't think it's possible, so I'm not going to let myself worry about it. Uh, It's not a memory deficiency problem, at least I don't believe it is, but fair warning right up front. For example, uh, I've said before I've never used an illegal drug. That's a repeat, and one of the reasons that I haven't is that I am personally very opposed to the inhalation of smoke as a delivery vehicle for any sort of, you know, controlled substance. I am, in other words, not a smoker. But I'm also somebody who comes from a long line of people who've worked in hospitals, either in administration or with the legal department or, you know, as a registered nurse. I've got medical people all over my family tree. And one thing that that sort of ingrained in me was this idea that it just didn't make sense to not follow the instructions on the prescription bottle. So let's say you you get a prescription for a, a prescription cough medicine. For the sake of argument, maybe it has codeine in it, maybe it doesn't, but some sort of really high-intensity cough medicine. If you are taking the medicine uh, for the sake of argument every four hours as prescribed, and that's not stopping the coughing, I come from a line of people, or at least I personally am an individual who would not just double up that, you know, recipe. I wouldn't just take it upon myself to change the directions or to increase my dosage. At that point, you call the doctor. You contact the pharmacist if you can't get a hold of your doctor. You ask other questions because the issue may not be using that prescription medicine in the prescribed way isn't getting it done, so you should change the rules. The issue may be that it's the wrong medicine. The issue may be that it's the wrong diagnosis. So whatever's in that medicine cabinet, whether I needed a doctor's note and a pharmacist to fill it, or whether I just picked it up off the shelf, is every bit as much a drug that needs to be taken in the "quote unquote" right way, just like alcohol. So, there's a few rules. I'm going to get to these rules as I kind of go through a rambling sort of position, not not a history so much, but as a position on the use of alcohol. Now, first off, alcohol being legal and readily available. You know, that's a plus in its favor. You don't have any of the negatives that come from trying to deal with substances that are illegal and therefore have uh, a bigger wild card in terms of their quality control. But the main thing for me is that, to me, alcohol being essentially something that is distilled, liquefied fermentation of a grain or a fruit, you know, that to me seems like it's a very natural thing. It, it's close enough to food that I can make that sort of distinction, I you know, grew up in a part of the country where a lot of people chewed tobacco. I never chewed tobacco. But you know, if I had chosen to, to dip something or to stick a pinch between my cheek and gums, it certainly wouldn't have been a tobacco product. It probably would have been something more natural, derived from spice, with a great deal of, of natural mint and clover, you know, perhaps even cinnamon in it. I, I could have seen doing that, which doesn't really um, help you fit in with the cowboy set. So I never really went there. But that whole, that idea of, of the natural element, we had a party in my house just a week or two ago, and you know, my job tends to be when I go to a party with family members, historically my job has been designated driver. Part of the reason for that is that my interest in alcohol tends to have more to do with taste than it does to do with effect. So I'm not the kind of guy who would show up at a party and slam down three Bud Lights to try to catch up to my friends. That's That's not how I do it. In fact, right now, as a result of that party, I have sitting in my fridge a 16-ounce can of Coors Light. I openly wonder how long that can will be in my refrigerator. It's certainly not calling to me. I don't really need to spend any time taste-testing this particular beer or reminding me of what this beer tastes like. It doesn't qualify. In other words, it's, it's the equivalent of a, of a McDonald's cheeseburger, versus comparing that to maybe making a hamburger yourself on the grill with the right kind of spices and with your own personal favorite sort of cheese. You're not really going to knock, knock any old ladies down in your rush to get that you know, McDonald's cheeseburger. And Coors Light certainly is is that side of the spectrum. No, if I have a beer during this particular recording, it will be Shiner. Shiner Oktoberfest from the Spetzel Brewer- Brewery in Texas. And that's the kind of brewery that I'm likely to, you know, frequent, local, with a craft artisan sort of a style to it. The actual beer that I'd be most likely to drink, if I was cracking open a beer that I think is the perfect beer for this particular inappropriate conversation, would come from Scotland. The brewery there is Brewdog. And the beer that I think right now is my favorite of all is Tokyo. Now, Tokyo is a dark, rich, oak-aged stout that is 18.2% alcohol by volume, or at least the two bottles I have left are from a particular run, a particular line, that is 18.2% alcohol by volume. Uh, I'm going to stick with the 5.7% Shiner Oktoberfest. And as I often do at parties, I'm going to go with one. Now, one reason to avoid the bottle of Tokyo that perhaps is calling to me is that I only have two of those bottles left. But the other reason is that those two bottles are the equivalent of a six-pack. In fact, when I grew up in a part of the country where the only beer you were legally allowed to buy at age 18 was 3.2 beer, one of those beers is the equivalent of a six-pack. So the other thing I like about um, the artistry that goes in to making these sort of local beers, and we probably have a pretty good idea in this day and age of, of what the you know, brewery close to you is. What, what is your local brewery and what do they make and usually there's creative names associated with them old leg humper from thirsty dog is one example let me just read a little blurb from the bottle of dogma that i have from the scottish brewery brew dog this one sits on my desk i've kept it it's a big bottle it's not just a you know 12 ounce and it's you know big enough you could actually put a flower in it and call it a vase if you wanted to but the side panel of this particular beer reads Among other things, it reads like this, the flavors, intricacies, nuances of this beer are best enjoyed while musing over some obscure 17th century philosophical meanderings. That's the style. That's the humor of this particular kind of beer. Uh, I find these craft breweries either take themselves way seriously, if perhaps way too seriously, or have tongue firmly in cheek at least often enough to make it work. In Inappropriate Conversations 100, I mentioned that perhaps the first recording that I made that wasn't my own show, that was a contribution to somebody else, was an MP3 file that I sent to the podcast, the now defunct podcast, Here Goes Nothing. And what I sent to them was a beer review by a beer from Aventinas. And the reason that I picked it was it was a beer that on the side advertised that it was brewed with clove and vanilla. Those are two things that I'm very interested in. And I was eager to try that out and, and give that a taste and see what the flavors would do. And that's sort of the way I approach things. So I'm either the designated driver who's totally fine with one beer at the most, as long as it's a good beer, as long as it's an interesting beer. Now, lately, I've had the you know, the benefit of having adult children old enough to drive for whatever reason, interested in hanging out with their parents on the occasional you know weekend work party. And then I can actually have one of the more powerful craft beers because I'm not the driver at all. But in my past, typically, I was the, de- the designated driver. And the other role that I find myself in most often in parties is bartender. Both of these have an element to them of controlling your use of the controlled substance. And that's kind of what I want to talk about is how do I drink when I drink and whether it's okay to advocate for drinking in this manner. And I'm, of course, going to come along with the side that it is okay. I'll hit on Christian doctrine near the end of this little segment. But first, just to give a shout out to um, you know, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers, I am a big fan of the designated driver program, and I believe that there's nothing inconsistent with the idea of saying that it is okay for people to drink and to go out and drink. But part of that planning, just like remembering your wallet or remembering your coat, is remembering how you're figuring out how you're going to get home. Are you going to use public transportation? So you're going to grab the train or something, and you don't have to worry about. It operating a vehicle? Or are you going to bring with you a designated driver? Or are you going to control yourself and have one 12-ounce beer during the course of a three- or four-hour party or two over the course of a six- to eight-hour event? That sort of thought process. Now, there are things about Mothers Against Drunk Driving that I, frankly, object to. And I definitely objected to them when I was in high school and college because I thought that there was a lot of, well, I don't want to call it hysteria. Because when you're talking about matters of life and death, it's important to understand that you almost can't get hysterical in that situation. But the way Ronald Reagan's administration in the 80s was holding states hostage, refusing to provide highway maintenance funds, unless every single state did exactly what the president said he thought they should do with their drinking age and with their drinking laws, it wouldn't have smacked of hypocrisy so much if this attitude had come from a liberal Democrat but coming from a conservative Republican who advocated for states' rights in his campaign and allegedly believed in federalism, well, it was one of the initial signs I took that the man was not operating at 100% mental capacity. And I stand firm on my point of view that even running for re-election, it was pretty clear something wasn't right. And of course, we know in retrospect that he was suffering from the early onset of dementia and would eventually die from complications related to Alzheimer's disease. So, the way Mothers Against Drunk Drivers ponied up to the political powers that be, and in some cases, some chapters, not all, but some chapters, I felt played fairly fast and loose with facts. On more than one occasion, I was raising questions, and they were viewed at the time as being self-serving questions because I was 19 years old at the time. But raising questions about whether the statistics that were being thrown around about the dangers of teenagers and teenage drunk driving, and therefore the drinking age needs to be raised to 21, and we shouldn't have a grandfather clause for people like me who were kind of in, right in the middle of, of being legal during that time, I raised the question of whether those statistics actually were being honestly conveyed, I believe. I don't have the data to prove it, but I believe that there was at least reason to investigate whether or not people were throwing around numbers. Where a teenager in the passenger seat, you know, not under the influence of alcohol himself, but in the passenger seat of an adult drunk driver, would be cited as being a teenager involved in a drunk driving accident. Would a sober teenager run down on the road by an adult drunk driver be cited as a as a teenage statistic? I did a little bit of number crunching myself when I was at university back then, early 1980s, and just pulled all the arrest records that I could get. Now... There may be an argument for saying that arrest records for people who were under the age of 18 would not have been published in the paper to protect the, you know, the rights of minors. But that wasn't the debate. The debate was whether or not 18 to 21-year-olds or 18 to 20-year-olds should be permitted to drink because of the danger they pose to society with their inability to handle alcohol. Now, my argument was twofold. First, if you delay the drinking age to 21 and everybody obeys the law, you're going to have a bunch of irresponsible 21-year-olds drinking because the reality is the first time you you know engage in this behavior, you're going to make mistakes. Nobody picks up a musical instrument and it's instantly Mozart. It just doesn't happen. But the other problem that I had was by pulling the statistics of people who are of legal age and grouping them into these you know, three-year spans, 18 to 20, 21 to 23, 24 to 26, and so forth and so on. I was able to establish over the course of a semester at school. Now, it wasn't a scientific study. I was only using the statistics for one very large city in the state where I lived. And only over that select period of time, theoretically, a larger study should have been done across multiple communities, multiple states, in fact, over a longer period of time. But what I found was that this 18 to 20-year-old group was not your trouble. If you were really interested in shutting down drunk driving, you needed to raise the drinking age to something like 35. So there was enough hypocrisy there to go around that I was a little bit uncomfortable with it, but the concepts are solid. Anyone who goes out for a party and tells themselves that they are quote unquote, only drinking is making a serious mistake. You're going out and you're using a drug that you intend to, at some point, depending on your usage, render you ineffective to operate a motor vehicle and To presume that you can operate a motor vehicle in that situation is completely unacceptable.
1: If you like food, I'm talking about food, then why not listen to Crimes Against Food with Mia Steele and me, Gloria Linds. You can find us on SimplySyndicated.com or download through iTunes.
0: So when I've broken the law, it's been on two fronts. And I'll be honest and say, hey, the, the first one was intentional. You're 16 years old. People mistake you for being older. They'll sell you beer. You buy beer, you drink beer, not a problem. You're 17, maybe 17 and a half years old. You grow a beard. Now you look 21 to most people. You can buy alcohol. People sell you alcohol, not a problem. So even before the age of 18, in a state where 3.2 beer was legal to drink at 18, I was drinking, you know, not just beer before I was old enough for that, but I was also drinking gin and other liqueurs as well. So I've been an underage drinker before, and I understand kind of what the dynamic. Is like there, but you know the other mistake that I made innocent mistake truthfully, was drinking moonshine. The problem was at the time i didn 't realize that it was moonshine. Uh, I was you know breaking down drum set or setting up drum set actually for a band that was going to perform a concert at my school, and when I was done, the drummer said, "Hey, you know, in my pickup truck, uh, thanks for helping me you've been great in my pickup truck there's a half drunk bottle of wine." And a bottle, of, and an unopened bottle of beer, you're welcome to do whichever one you want. Well, I took him up on the offer. I went to his truck. And the problem was that it was a summer type day. It was, you know, late, late spring, early summer, and a sunny day at that. So both these drinks were very warm. And again, as an underage drinker, I wasn't much in a position to cool them off. You know, I couldn't just take them home, pop them in the fridge. I was going to drink whatever this was on the walk home from school. So I thought to myself, well, you know what, which one of these is going to go down worse? I mean, it wasn't the best brand of beer in the world. It was you know, perhaps the equivalent of the Coors Light I've got sitting in the fridge. But it was either warm beer or warm wine. And I thought, well, the warm wine is probably going to go down better. The thing that wasn't clear to me, and I'm not going to say that the drummer didn't tell me, he might have told me. I just didn't understand him if he did. It was homemade wine. Somebody had fermented their own corn and made a very sweet wine out of it. And it was in a sort of a green bottle, maybe a Mickey's Big Mouth bottle or perhaps a Heineken bottle or something like that. Probably a Mickey's Big Mouth bottle because it, it was a screw top. And you couldn't really tell the coloring of it. I think if I would poured it into a glass, it might have been obvious just looking at the liquid that it was much more powerful than your average wine. And that it may not have even looked you know, like what you consider to be, a, be naturally the color of a red wine or a blush. Now, I drank it straight from the bottle on the way home. And when i got home i got a call from a friend of mine who was also helping out he must have been the one who was stuck with the warm beer because i made my choice first genuinely concerned for my well-being because the drummer was more than just a little bit unnerved that i didn't just take a, a swig or two from his bottle of wine i took his bottle of wine and i thought well, well first of all what value could there possibly be in this bottle it's essentially a, a leftover beer bottle which also should have been a t- you know kind of a tip to me that this was a little bit of a different situation but no, instead of being angry that I, you know, took the rest of it or I hugged it all to myself, or I took a souvenir bottle of some sort, they were genuinely worried for my well being because I'd I'd drunk the equivalent of I don't want to say eight, nine ounces of something that, you know, was pretty darn close to one hundred percent alcohol. We're talking, you know, hundred and ninety proof, what have you. And so I've used homemade alcohol as well, perhaps foolishly, but using the homemade alcohol in a way that was unintentional, but it raises questions about whether or not that was a legal drink for him to have as a, you know, 20 something drummer in a rock band. It certainly was a question about whether it was legal for me to be, you know, drinking it. So it's kind of wrong on two fronts and perhaps on some level did well to survive the experience. Okay. So Shiner Oktoberfest. And we're off. Now, if I refer to myself as a creative drinker, if I'm going to drink, I'm going to try to drink something interesting, I would rather somebody put something bizarre and strange into the way they create an alcoholic beverage than to be dealing with, you know, just something that is stripped down to nothing, sold as a commodity. And that's the same way I serve as a bartender as well. At this party the other weekend, um, the theme was martini. And Back in the day, if you told me, well, you're going to have a martini party, my thought would have been, okay, so great, we're going to get together with a group of people. They either like gin or they like vodka, and the only real variety there is how much vermouth, do you want any olive juice? I mean, that would have been the mentality, but, you know, I think we've seen this probably, anybody who's gone to a bar and looked at any sort of martini recipe has seen the incredible variety. Not just stuff like Cosmopolitans, but, you know, drinks like, you know, Dirty Girl Scout you know, which basically tastes like thin mint Girl Scout cookies, things of that nature. So I went in as the bartender with an incredible variety—at least what for me would have been years ago, an uh, unimaginable variety of different martinis: cinnamon, pear, Butterfinger, Cosmopolitan, Blue Hawaiian, chocolate almond martini. You know, Dirty Mary, Grasshopper martini. It's just uh, then you're straight up. You know, triple sec martini, vodka martini, gin martini. Just all the, all sorts of things and. We went to this, you know, knowing we'd have a pretty good crowd with a rule, bring a sleeping bag or bring a driver. And with that rule firmly in place, I felt comfortable pre-making what we thought would be the most popular of these. And that would give me enough of a head start with people that I could then take requests and keep up sort of one shaker at a time. This obviously kept me very busy. I'm not going to end the night having one too many (laughs) in a situation where I'm constantly occupied. And that's the way I like it, because I don't like having one too many. I don't use the drug of alcohol as a drug. I don't use it with the intent of getting what we would traditionally call high. I prefer to simply be relaxed and having a good time. And again, for the experience to be literally all about the flavor. I had a friend in high school, again, another underage drinker who told me that he thought that it was very dangerous to be drinking alcohol and seeking different experiences of alcohol because of the taste. That his opinion was, you're at greater risk for alcoholism that way than if you just drink to get drunk. That argument made no sense to me then, and it doesn't make any sense to me now. I used to joke about Dan that I would be surprised if he was alive. Now, I'm happy to say that through the power of Facebook, I'm aware that he seems to be alive and well, so... Maybe neither one of us, you know, had that, hit that ledge of the slippery slope and fell down into the, into the rabbit hole of alcoholism. But the reason I disagreed with this point was, is that to me, I'm always in the basement of the science building trying to find the right recipe. I'm not just, you know, if somebody hands me a bottle of something that's reprehensible in terms of its flavor and quality, but happens to have a lot of alcohol in it, I'm going to say no. Back in high school, Dan would have said yes. But worse, the bigger risk in my head is, what are you saying yes to? I mean, part of the reason I'm going to say no to somebody who's got some really horrific off-brand, you know, I've had bad gins and bad scotches before. And when gin and scotch are good, it's great. But there's a bandwidth of, of mediocre quality that can get you passively by, in my opinion, with vodkas and bourbons and whiskeys and rums. But when you're dealing with scotch, when you're dealing with gin, and if I were a drinker of tequila, I'm not, but I, I suspect tequila, tequila falls in the same, you know, the same boat, there's a quality issue there where you just don't want to step below a certain line. And part of the reason that I'm not the kind of person who's going to say yes to just you know, you know mad dog 2020 or whatever is because to me, well, I, I'm not drinking to get drunk. And the reason that I'm not is that I made an agreement years and years ago. With a very good friend of mine, that I would not abuse alcohol as a means of escape. I wouldn't use it when I was angry. I wouldn't use it when I'm depressed. I wouldn't use it as a means by which of running away from my problems. Alcohol is an act of celebration, not medication. I call that one of the Janet rules. And now, this is not the Janet that I've mentioned just a couple of episodes ago, who I've met online through inappropriate conversations. This is a different person named Janet going all the way back to when I was in high school. And from those high school conversations we had both agreed that we had seen alcohol used badly by adults in our life. I'm not here to name and shame, I'm not going to talk about her parents at all. And I won't make a distinction between my parents or my uncle, or I won't make that distinction, but we had seen it used badly before. And generally speaking, used badly because people were using it as a means of escape, either to um, douse a temper or to boost a depression, but using alcohol, again, medicinally, using it in the way that you probably should be using some better drug that is more in line with what you should, you know, how you should deal with depression. And I think probably both Dan and I from high school would have agreed that using alcohol in this manner is definitely a higher risk for getting into alcoholism. So, you know, Janet rule number one was, Hey, don't use alcohol when angry or depressed. Alcohol is a means of celebration, not medication. Janet rule. Number two, I believe I've actually mentioned on previous inappropriate conversations. She is one of the um, intersexual friends of mine who really put her cards on the table way before I was perhaps even, capable of thinking these thoughts myself to say, Hey, there is a form of friendship between men and women that is not used in hopes of setting up a sexual relationship that there, it is possible to have a friendship with somebody where the sexuality is off the table. Obviously for most heterosexual males, I've just described all of their friendship with other heterosexual males, but for women, that's a different matter. And it was really Janet rule. Number two, that helped codify that in a way that I could understand it well enough to leverage it and to navigate through you know, kind of the minefield of having a very open idea, sort of an open source code mentality when it comes to gender and relationships. Janet is also the person I think who was you know, one of the first people to assume that I had used other drugs besides alcohol. And uh, I'll get to the reason why in the different drummer segment. But you know, that relationship formed in a very you know, kind of nice organic way. And drinking was part of it because she knew that I, I had drunk before she had, you know, been to parties herself and both of us had kind of learned the hard way, uh, you know, as you will, where that line was. And the good news was we both came away with a point of view about not crossing that line. There are ways that I will share on future inappropriate conversations about how to manage a personal line. I mean, when it comes to issues of integrity, can you build a hedge around your own personal rules? I'm not a Pharisee. I've never really liked the Pharisee mentality. I don't believe it's a good thing when people build a hedge around Scripture or laws or other you know sort of things like that. To me, those sort of things should be black and white, and they should be read carefully and as they were intended. But in your personal life, there's probably nothing wrong with saying, I'm going to build a little bit of structure around this. And so one of the ways I think that you I personally avoid drinking wastefully having the third or the fourth drink when you're feeling fine and you're adequately functional and you're not trying to become non-functional. Well, one of the ways is to have sort of a notion about what the best is to me. If I drank half that can of Coors Light and poured the rest down the sink, I wouldn't lose sleep over it for a moment. But if I waste any of this shiner, that's going to bother me. And if I waste a relatively expensive high alcohol import from Scotland well, let's just say that I've never dropped one of those and spilled it on the carpet, but if I did, the carpet would not be my biggest concern. Which is why when it comes to scotch, if I had my preference, I'm probably going to drink Glenlivet. You know, and when it comes to gin, I, you know, one of the first alcoholic beverages besides beer I ever had was Tanqueray. I'm probably going to be somewhere in that family of Tanqueray. In other words, the best. When we decided that we needed to have a vodka around for this party, in case somebody really kind of wanted the, made the outrageously crazy request of actually having a real martini, that I better have a bottle of Grey Goose or something like it, because I didn't want to be, and no offense to you know any of the other brands, I didn't want to put just anything in the shaker for that situation. Now, having those kind of tastes are expensive. Importing beer from Scotland is expensive. Importing beer from Hawaii is expensive. I'll get to that in just a second. But it's a lot easier to control yourself and to use good, strategic, disciplined wisdom when using alcohol as a controlled substance. If you have respect for how much that copay is, you know, how much does this prescription really cost? And in this case, you're paying 100% of the prescription. So you got a pretty good idea of what it costs. But, yeah, you know, I'm not necessarily, let's just say I'm past the age of buying a case of natural light because it's cheap. I'm now more to the age of saying, I may have two bottles left, I'm going to find the right time, and I'm going to savor the moment. I mentioned Maui Brewing Company, because the last call that I made, the very last Here Goes Nothing episode, was a live call. I got to the point where I was able to listen to streaming audio and make a cell phone call in, and I knew that they were live, and even trickier matter when you understand the time distance from your house to the United Kingdom, but... From Hawaii to the United Kingdom, I had to do a little bit more math to figure out exactly where I was because Hawaii doesn't do daylight savings time. Hawaii has no need to do daylight savings time. Well, there's a lot of daylight all the time anyway. So I was factoring in when when they were going to go live, when they were going to take colors, and I was initially off by an hour for that reason. But when I called, I called in to talk to them about the Maui Brewing Company because I had been to their restaurant, the local front end of their, you know, of the local brewery there. And they had, you know, not just four, five, or six of their own homemade beers on tap. They had something like 18 all the time. And when I went from the beginning of the vacation for a trip there and went back later near the end of the vacation, they'd swapped out five or six during that time as well. Um, Literally, if if a beer that they brought in a few kegs for is popular enough, they could be swapping that out for the next beer just because they can be drunk dry. And, you know, they did it right. You know, they had a a sampler pad. They helped people, you know, they they served food as well. So a good way to manage that sort of beer sampling, beer tasting experience. I personally believe that there's not much difference between a beer tasting experience and a wine tasting experience. It's just that you're not going to go to a wine tasting expecting somebody to serve you Lancer's grape and Boone's Farm Strawberry Fields forever. But You're also not going to go to a beer tasting expecting to sample products made by Coors, Budweiser, and Miller. I'm tempted to say no offense, Coors, Budweiser, and Miller, but I don't think I mind if you get offended. (laughs) So, you know, it, it comes down to, again, are you buying the best? Are you sampling the best? Because if you're sampling the best, you're not going to overdo it. There have been, I'm so serious about this, there have been more than one occasion in my life where the trip from work to home to the party has Had stuff happen to it, you know, getting horrible news about a family member or getting into an argument or a fight with a a family member or somebody on the road, yeah, if I find myself in an absolute unmitigated fit of road rage on the way to the party, I'm not going to drink that night because to me, the Janet rules and my relationship with this woman and my relationship, frankly, with the rest of my family, because Janet was right, much more important to me than anything that somebody's going to pour out of a bottle. Because I feel like those Janet rules have provided a hedge of protection around not just me, but also anybody who cares about me. Because I don't know for sure that I would be a good drunk. Now, the good news is I don't know for sure because that's not something I experiment with. Again, I'm not experiment. I'm experimenting with the, the taste and the flavor and the experience of these beverages. I'm not experimenting with what happens if I go too far. But we had... More than one occasion in my life, especially in college, where you encounter that person who is two or three beers in from being unbearable, just unmitigated jerks. In fact, when I was a freshman, my very first year in college, the resident assistant, the senior in college whose job it is to look after the new freshman and to make sure that this group of people who have no choice, according to the bylaws of the university, but to stay on campus in one of these dormitories, that they get along, that they mesh that no one's being you know, bullied, that there's no problems, right? Well, the biggest bully we had to deal with as people living on this floor was the resident assistant. He was a good guy most of the time, but if he went out drinking, you just tried to avoid him the rest of the night because he was one of those guys who was an angry drunk and was going to be picking a fight with somebody, was going to be looking for trouble. And the thing that I didn't like about it wasn't just, well, of course you don't like that behavior. It's ugly behavior, but It was willful and intentional to a certain degree. I mean, he knew what he was going to drink, and he knew how much he was going to drink, and he knew how he acted when he got drunk. And he was one of those people in that cycle of violence where you go too far, you apologize the next day. You know, the next weekend, you're right back there. You go too far, you apologize the next day. And the thing that infuriated me was, and granted, this is a group of teenage boys, this is freshmen in college, way too eager to make excuses. It wasn't this guy It was the alcohol. Well, I'm sorry. Alcohol doesn't do the talking. Your mouth does the talking. And I don't really offer too much quarter for people, including the Mel Gibsons of the world, who try to blame their behavior on substances that they've intentionally taken. Again, we're a weird country. If somebody gets drunk and gets in a fight and does horrific things, we're awfully quick to say, well, you know, he had too much to drink and almost overlook it as a result of that. And yet we come down very hard on people who use other drugs and don't hurt anybody. It's a weird sort of, you know, dichotomy. It doesn't really work to me. Alcohol needs to be used responsibly. And if you can't tell me what it tasted like after you had it, well, then why did you drink it? Because to me, that's where the experimentation makes some sense. There's lots of ways that you can get that sort of dizzy light on my feet Even, you know, coming close to having hallucinations experience, a strong blow to the head will do that. You know, what is the the line from the movie, The Man Who Knew Too Little, where um, the Peter Gallagher character was talking about Bill Murray, the star of the show, and made reference to, I'd never seen anybody forget so much so fast without a severe head wound. But the reality is, if you want to wake up with a bad headache and a severe memory loss, just give somebody a bat. There's lots of ways to accomplish that. But there's a complete difference in my mind if you accomplish that with something that is flavorful and unique and almost to a certain degree handmade for you versus you know something that you could be drinking from a swill. Nothing against the keg party. There's a certain thing about that keg party experience that is unique to high school, unique to college. But at the age I'm at now, I just don't have time for a kegger. When I started inappropriate conversations a long time ago, if you'd told me that at some point I'd be naming John Ozzy Osbourne as a different drummer, I probably would have been a little bit surprised by that. But in some level, he's almost how not to do it, <laughs> what happens if you do it wrong. He's almost a case in point. So I'm going to refer to Ozzy Osbourne as my different drummer. And part of it is because I really do have. Even to this day, a strong affinity for the music that Black Sabbath recorded in the 1970s. When I was at the age of trying my first beer and so forth and so on, the music I would have been listening to in the car was Black Sabbath. And I mentioned that I was going to have a a story about Janet related to the different drummer today. And that's because my favorite Black Sabbath t-shirt in high school, going all the way back to maybe ninth grade, certainly 10th grade, was the Black Sabbath Volume 4 album cover shirt. And I wore that thing at least twice a week. Uh, it it never got out of the dryer without being put on. And at some point, I think probably my friends thought I must have had more than one because, well, I wore it that often. And Janet had made an assumption that because I listened to rock and roll and had friends who used a variety of drugs and that I wore a Black Sabbath T-shirt often enough that I must be engaged in a variety of drug use. And she was one of the many people, I think, at that time in my life who was very surprised to find out that I was, quote, unquote, only using alcohol. I think I probably got a lot of slack for that. Um, People would have been much more strict with me had they not been much more fearful of other things. The fact that I clocked in with such a relatively tame palate I think probably did me some good in terms of me not having to answer quite as many questions from the adults in my world, whether they be youth group leaders or teachers or, or parents, for that matter. Now, my first experience of Black Sabbath was getting money from grandmother around the time of my birthday. I don't remember whether it was 25 or $30, but however much it was, and this is you know back in 1979, I would guess, it was enough money for me to buy three albums, and two of those albums were two record sets. So I went to the record store, and I came back with the first Led Zeppelin album I ever owned, Led Zeppelin four, the first Rush album I ever owned, All the World's a Stage, the double live with the drum solo, very important, had to have the drum solo. And Black Sabbath, we sold our soul for rock and roll. This was essentially a two record set with a retrospective view of their first six albums. So it didn't include anything from the not yet recorded Technical Ecstasy or Never Say Die or anything that happened after Ozzy left the band. And it only had maybe one or two token tracks at the most from Sabotage. The selections from the album Sabotage, in fact, were woefully misguided and frankly some of the selections from other albums like volume four were a little sketchy too as a collection a greatest hits collection it included maybe the most unusual track i've ever seen on a best of retrospective the 14 minute warning song the blues number from their self-titled first album which is essentially just a straight-up blues lyric but with a seven or eight minute you know electric guitar solo kind of in the middle of it So that was an unusual selection. Also from that very first self-titled album, it included my least favorite song by Black Sabbath, uh, N.I.B., Nativity in Black. Armed with these three albums, I really began a journey with all three of those bands. And to this very day, I've made that conversion along the way from album to cassette to CD and even MP3 files. I've got something like 53 Black Sabbath songs on my MP3 player right now. That is nowhere near tops. I mean, there's a great journey to go from there to the amount of songs I have on my MP3 player from The Fall or from Johnny Cash or even from Garth Brooks. But quite a few, and most of them, 47, 48 of them, have Ozzy Osbourne doing the singing. So why does Ozzy Osbourne make sense here as a different drummer on this topic? Because I don't know that I can point to any of the albums and say those are his lyrics, Unlike a lot of singers and rock and roll bands, Osborne isn't necessarily the, you know, designated as the writer of words, especially for the first album. I've heard interviews where the bass player, Geezer Butler, is given credit for having a lot of the ideas. Now, whether he was putting together the rhyme schemes and all that, I don't know. But they credit themselves in a pretty collaborative way. It's rare to see a black Sabbath track that doesn't give credit to all members of the band. And usually when you see it, it's like a solo instrumental of some sort where it's obvious. It's just Tony Iommi, the guitar player. That's all it is. And my fandom's a little bit off the beaten track as well. I mean, I could easily cite Warpigs pigs and iron man and, you know, songs like that. But when you look at what I've kind of got in my collection, what I've got in the MP3 player, what qualifies to be part of that group of songs, it's, you know, sometimes it's an eclectic mix. From Black Sabbath, Volume 4, for example, probably my favorite song is Supernaut, which ends with the lyrics, I've seen the future, and I've left it behind. Clearly, the band, or perhaps Ozzy Osbourne, if he wrote that particular lyric, has the same attitude about time that I do, not willing to give time too much credit. I mentioned in previous Inappropriate Conversations the Black Sabbath song, After Forever, from the Masters of Reality album, and a song that would fit on any contemporary Christian album of its day, a song that, frankly... Striper could cover in concert, and no one would know that it wasn't them, short of perhaps the guitar solo. From Never Say Die, one of the more maligned albums, the last album that Ozzy Osbourne appeared on, yeah, I look at the songs on that CD and say there's no real good reason why, if I were to vote one of these CDs off the island, this would be the one, right? But to me, Junior's Eyes is a great song. And if you haven't listened to Junior's Eyes because you've only heard it in the context of what is otherwise viewed, Widely viewed to be a mediocre Black Sabbath album. I mean, anybody who's ever had to deal with a family problem, separation, medical issues, it resonates with me. Uh, The musicianship may not be of the same ilk, may not be quite as good as the rest, but it's there. I'm going to come to Paranoid at the end. I'm going to see if there's any other tracks I'd like to call out. From Technical Ecstasy, All Moving Parts Stand Still, uh, one of my favorite. Again, an album that people view as a lesser album uh, I've got five or six tracks from that on my MP3 player, uh, which means it can't be that bad of an album. And All Moving Parts stand Still, to me, is the standout track. The thrill of it all is the standout track for me from Sabotage. Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, very interesting. Killing Yourself to Live might be right up there with my favorite of all Black Sabbath songs. And again, so you got an album here. It's it's Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. You've got the title track, which was a big hit for them. Sabra Cadabra covered by Metallica on one of their albums of remakes. No, the one I'm picking from that is "Killing Yourself to Live," but I want to cite a Black Sabbath song from Paranoid, their second album, the one that produced War Pigs and Iron Man, and call it "Hand of Doom." And the reason that I want to do it is that I think that Ozzy Osbourne is a very misunderstood character. I've recently seen the documentary film made about him called "In Ozzy We Trust," a very standard musician documentary type of film. Interesting only if you're interested in the person. So if you're not interested in the history of Black Sabbath, or an Ozzy Osbourne as an individual, there's not going to be much there for you. If you're looking at it because you want to see a little bit more into the life of Kelly Osbourne, well, it's not that there's nothing there, but there's not much there. So, yeah, typical music documentary, but sort of bears out that there's a level to this guy that once you clear away the after effect of all the drugs and alcohol, once you sober him up, and once you get him sort of in the semi-retirement that he's in now— there's there's more going on there than meets the eye. And you wonder, well, how did Ozzy Osbourne survive the experiences of the 70s and the early 80s? That's a fair question. Uh, he clearly did some things and did some things in public, which indicate that he was not of a right mind. He was not at all a well person as far as it goes. And I'm guessing that like Alice Cooper, at some point somebody sat him down and said, one more drink and your dad. You realize that, don't you? Cold turkey may not be the easiest way to stop doing something, but sometimes you don't have a choice. That is certainly sort of the story behind Alice Cooper, and it seemingly is the story behind Ozzy Osbourne as well. So Hand of Doom, from that very early album, perhaps their most famous record, Paranoid, about drug use, and better than any Nancy Reagan, just say no slogan, Hand of Doom depicts the downside of becoming dependent upon something. And essentially turning your life and your free will over to a substance, or at least to the habitual use of a substance. I heard this song at a young age. I'd already made the decision that I really had no intention of using illegal drugs. But certainly this song paints a picture that makes intravenous drug use in particular seem like the completely wrong idea. I think a lot of adults at the time heard the song Hand of Doom and interpreted it as a pro-drug song. I know my parents initially did, and their issue was that somebody was singing about drugs. And singing about drugs is always bad. Then my attitude is that Nancy Reagan is the worst person in the country because that lady won't shut up about drugs. Which is a confrontational way of forcing conversation. And you get lectured to a little bit, and then you say, here's the lyrics. What part of this song makes you think that you would go out and use drugs? What part of your relationship with me makes you think that I'm going to hear this song and go out and use drugs? This is basically, you know, people accuse Black Sabbath, especially that first album with its spooky sort of horror show imagery, of being, you know, satanic in some way. And I've already mentioned, I'm not the biggest fan of the Point of View track, N.I.B., but the title track, Black Sabbath, the band's named Black Sabbath, the album's named Black Sabbath, the song's named Black Sabbath. You know, I if you are a Christian who believes That Satanism is wrong and that Satanism is evil, then Black Sabbath agrees with you, and they've written a song that you probably should be all enthusiastic about because it is exactly, it's a song that begs the question that evil exists, that evil is wrong, and then you want to have nothing to do with it. That is what the song Black Sabbath's about. And yet I was told in youth group that Black Sabbath the band and that Black Sabbath the song were evil. You tell a kid that today, you give a kid that sort of draconian message today. And what you've done is you've lost a member of your youth group. And the reason you have is that kids aren't stupid. And when the truth comes into direct conflict with the dogma that you've presented them, kids, kids have an ability to opt out today that maybe to a certain extent I didn't have so much when I was that age. And certainly the generation before me may not have had at all. So that's something to be aware of. Never lie to a kid. In other words, one of the biggest lies told in rock music history revolves around the Ozzy Osbourne song, Suicide Solution. So if you're going to talk about alcohol and alcohol abuse and the right way and presumably the opposite of that being the wrong way to use alcohol, Suicide Solution is a great example. This is also really my last stand with Ozzy Osbourne for a large number of years. When Black Sabbath split up, The first assumption was that, well, first, Ozzy Osbourne wasn't going to live long enough to make an album anyway, and then when he did live long enough to make an album, I don't think anybody, including me, expected the Ozzy Osbourne album to be better than the next couple of Black Sabbath albums, and that's probably a controversial statement. I'm sure there's a lot of Ronnie James Dio fans who are shaking a fist proverbially at me right now, because there's nothing wrong with Dio. There's nothing wrong with his style of metal, his type of lyricism. It's fine. I just prefer Ozzy and the thing that Ozzy Osbourne did that I think was great was that Black Sabbath went out and got themselves a world-class singer from Rainbow and other bands to replace Osbourne and actually have somebody with a better voice and a better range. Osbourne went out and got himself a world-class guitarist and even on the original cut of Blizzard of Oz, that album had, you know, great session musicians playing as well. I mean, he's got, you know, ex-members of Uriah Heap. That's another band that I have a lot of time for. So Ozzy Osbourne puts together this very good band and a very interesting first album with the first two tracks being, I don't know, and crazy train. Now, I don't think I care who you are. If you don't think you've heard crazy train before, you're probably wrong. (laughs) And it didn't need to be a top five single on the pop charts to become a ubiquitous part of our culture. But the song that generated the most controversy was suicide solution. And all those songs that I just mentioned are on side one of Blizzard of Oz, and I liked side one of Blizzard of Oz. It was obviously better than anything that had been recorded on Never Say Die. I just wasn't as big a fan of side two of Blizzard of Oz, and I know other people probably are. Mr. Crowley is probably their cup of tea. My reaction to it is about the same as my reaction to Nativity in Black. I just didn't have a lot of time for it. But the longer that album played and the more I got used to listening to it, the more the ending of that blizzard of Oz album was just an ugly reminder that the band that I'd enjoyed so much in the seventies was done and that it was over. And I didn't buy another black Sabbath album after heaven and hell. And I didn't buy another Ozzy Osbourne album after blizzard of Oz in the MP3 era, I've since been able to pick and choose a few songs along the way and, you know, dabble in things that I've missed. But in that era of going and buying an album or even later going and buying a CD, to me, the buck stopped when Never Say Die ended. The exception to that, besides Crazy Train, which you don't need to put that on your MP3 player. It's gonna—it's part of the popular culture. Now, the real exception to that for me was Suicide Solution. And part of it is that one of the biggest lies in music history was that anybody had the audacity to sue Ozzy Osbourne and accuse him of having any role to play in the suicide death of a teenager because of the lyrics of a song. Now, I'm dubious right up front anytime somebody says that I listened to a poetry reading, or I read a classic piece of literature, or I heard a song, or I watched a movie, and then I killed myself, and it's the fault of the artist. I don't accept that argument on its face, but suicide solution? I mean, the lyrics are wine is fine, but whiskey's quicker, suicide is slow with liquor. Grab a bottle, drown your sorrows, and then you'll lose all your tomorrows. I mean, it's a song that talks about being trapped in a bottle with the Grim Reaper coming fast. All of the imagery in Suicide Solution is about alcoholism being a dangerous death trap that you don't want to be in. It screams, don't drink the wrong way, as loudly as Hand of Doom, a decade or so earlier, said, you don't want to play with these kinds of drugs, These kinds of drugs are quick to create an addictive dependency and to take control of your life. Don't do it. And that same exact mentality, these two songs are, you know, thematic twins to each other. One of the songs in rock history that has shouted the loudest about the danger of abusing alcohol actually got its co-writer and lead singer dragged into court on charges that he was criminally responsible for the death of a teenager and... It wasn't just that he was sued in civil court for wrongful death. The same lawyers who were testifying about that wanted him to be arrested as being criminally culpable, as if he was somehow some sort of crime boss who had sent a hit out where the hit was being sent through an album across the airwaves, and he was ordering the kid to kill himself. Therefore, the kid was both hitman and victim, and Ozzy Osbourne was somehow the godfather, one of the most ridiculous moments in court history. Now, to the court's credit— this case didn't get much more than a cup of coffee and a donuts worth of time. It was dismissed very quickly. And later, a, a similar case was raised, and it was also dismissed. But just for the charges to be raised tell you, tells you how much we don't understand about alcohol, that even someone singing about its dangers can lead to confusion. Suicide solution is a nice, nice turn of phrase. You've got the alliteration of the S's. You've got the idea that we need a solution to the problem of suicide. You've got the idea that alcohol being a liquid is a solution and therefore drinking this is suicidal. All that stuff going on in an album that in, that has other tracks that I frankly don't take seriously at all. Don't take them seriously enough to still be an owner of that particular LP. Again, I own every Black Sabbath album made in the 1970s, including some live stuff later. I still have my two-record-set vinyl copy of We Sold Our Soul for Rock and Roll, partly because of the sentimental value of those being... Among the first three albums I ever bought, I've got a relationship with this music that goes back a long, long way, which means that on some level, I've got a relationship with Ozzy Osbourne as a fan of his music that goes back a long, long way. Watching that documentary was encouraging on multiple fronts because it showed that Ozzy Osbourne was still alive. It also showed that he was at a point in his career where he was able to take the craftsmanship of being a rock and roll singer more seriously and didn't view that sort of aspect of his work as a burden. And it hinted at a level of spirituality that I don't feel like I have any right to inquire about, but it's comforting to know that even if it's not on a level comparable to Alice Cooper's, it's comfortable to know that it, that it's there. That's enough for me to make Ozzy Osbourne, author of Suicide Solution, and collaborator with three other musicians on some of the greatest heavy metal music, ever written, before we even were calling it heavy metal, as a matter of fact. Ozzy Osbourne, well, not a drummer. That was Bill Ward's job. Still a different drummer. If the Suicide Solution lawsuit was an affront against logic and reason, and a lie told about Ozzy Osbourne, is Ozzy Osbourne the only major victim of deception when it comes to questions of alcohol? Alcohol use? Uh, Certainly not. I would number Jesus Christ and his disciples among those as well. In the second chapter of Acts, a passage describes the moment of Pentecost, which I've covered on a previous and appropriate conversation, talking about the Holy Spirit and whether we've evolved beyond religion through Christianity. I mentioned sort of that moment where a lot of outsiders who weren't part of the burgeoning Christian movement Accused all of the disciples of being drunk. They were speaking in tongues, they were having a religious gathering and a religious experience, and when you read the passage, they may have been having hallucinations as well. And the accusation was, well, these guys are drunk. I've had people tell me in church before that even though Jesus talks about drinking wine, and the original communion was certainly served with real wine, and he went to a party early on in his ministry and turned water into wine. And at the end of John's gospel, he tells people that he will not drink wine again with them until in his kingdom, in the new heaven and the new earth, they open a bottle of the new wine together. I've had people in the church tell me that, well, that's not really wine, that alcohol is evil and anything that has fermentation and this this fermented liquid in it is wrong and that the Bible condemns it. I'm sorry. The Bible is full of people drinking wine. If they were, you know, if it was set you know, more in the Northern part of Europe, I imagine it would be beer instead of wine. People throughout human history have been drinking alcoholic beverages. Jesus was among them. And if the alcohol that Jesus was drinking during his time was incapable of getting anyone intoxicated, then answer me this question. Why would Solomon in the Proverbs bother writing any warnings against being intoxicated? If the wine they had back then could not get you drunk, then why was drunkenness even a concept? Why would the passers-by on a busy weekend in Jerusalem insinuate that the followers of Christ were drunk? No, I think we need to have a much more mature understanding about what is depicted in the Bible. That yes, Judaism and Christianity both warn against the dangers of drunkenness. That is not the same thing as saying it's dangerous to taste with that particular set of hops, in that particular barley, with other ingredients like cloves and vanilla, well, what it might taste like. It's a completely different concept. And it's a lie that we tell as Christians about Jesus and about all of the Old Testament prophets and writers if we get this wrong. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. Show notes are enabled at the website, inappropriateconversations.org. You also can listen to Inappropriate Conversations at Stitcher, Stitcher Smart Radio, a better way to listen to radio on the go. Thanks for listening.